Bienvenidos a La Raza Chronicles. Welcome to Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Cusnid, and on today's program, we bring you an update on the current political crisis in Brazil. We speak to journalist Diogo Antonio Rodriguez. We also check in around developments on Cuba and how U.S.-Cuba relations have changed. We speak to Carl Kramer about workers' rights and safety and how maquilas are affecting people in Mexico as well as everywhere in the world. And we speak to someone from the Coalition for Justice for Alex Nieto around how his death is being remembered two years after the fact and how the community is continuing to push for justice and accountability. All this and much more, stay tuned. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Cusnid, and I have on the line with me Maria Villalta. She is one of the founders for the Justice for Alex Nieto Coalition. So why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about what happened to Alex Nieto about two years ago? Okay, so March 21st, 2014, Alex was in Bernal Heights Park, and he was finishing up his dinner before he started a shift as a security officer at a nightclub here in San Francisco when he was basically racially profiled and deemed a gang member by somebody that's not even from this neighborhood and um, called the police, and the police showed up and shot at him 59 times, hitting him over 14 times in his body and killing him on site. So, Maria, the coalition that you're a part of, there are a lot of people who are part of it who knew and loved Alex because he was a very important, positive part of the community. But there are also a lot of people who didn't personally know him. So tell us, why do you think that his murder, his death, has really brought so many people together and symbolized so much for so many people, the call for justice for his life? I think that it hits, uh, it struck a nerve on a lot of people, especially people that have grown up in the Mission District or Bernal Heights. You know, Bernal Heights and and the Mission was a, we were, it was all brown. Most of us were colored folks that lived in and worked in the Mission District and in Bernal Heights. And um, since this last tech boom, you know, there has been a lot of gentrification in the community. You don't see people of color just walking down the street anymore. The stores are changing. And, and I think that, that when he was killed, everybody linked it to the gentrification that was happening here. And I have on the line with me Maria Villalta. She's one of the founders of the Justice for Alex Nieto Coalition. And this is a really crucial time that people are actually filled the streets. They have marched. They have done beautiful vigils and they've honored his life and also mourned the lack of accountability. Just a couple weeks ago, earlier this month, there a civil suit. Alex Nieto's parents filed against the city of San Francisco to hold the police accountable that were responsible for for the death of their son. They were found not guilty. And so right now is a point where organizers are doing a lot to continue the work to hold police accountable. Maria, this is a really beautiful coalition because it brings together so many different folks. So first of all, give us a sense of how are people doing? Yesterday was that two-year anniversary of Alex's death. How are people doing? And tell us all the work that you all have planned ahead. Um, well, people are obviously from the verdict. People are disappointed. It was expected, but but still a little bit disappointed. We believe that we had a really strong case. Uh, Dante Pointer, which is the attorney, he fought really valiantly, and then also he 
gave us a really sense that maybe we would be winning the case. Unfortunately, due to a disproportionate jury, uh, we didn't get the verdict that we wanted, but, you know, we continue to fight for justice. And right now, since it was Alex's two-year anniversary, people are just kind of a little bit inspired. We're trying to build black and brown unity at the moment with the Justice for Mario Woods Coalition, as well as the Justice for Amilcar Perez Lopez, which was also a victim of the SFPD. Maria, so right now, people have, are finding that, that they didn't see justice through this civil suit. Tell us about the ways that community members are pushing for justice. Some organizers that are with the Justice for Mario Woods Coalition and the Justice for Alex Nieto and Justice for Amilcar Perez Lopez have gotten together. We've joined forces and we're trying to just make a stronger presence just in, in any kind of police brutality issues that are happening here in the city. There's, a, there's going to be a town hall meeting here in San Francisco, which is the officiation of the Black and Brown Unity here in San Francisco. That is basically our relationship as a community, color community. Also, we, as a Justice for Alex Nieto coalition, we have made a list of demands for the Board of Supervisors that we will be presenting right now. We're just asking for endorsements. You can find the demands on our website. But it, we have a few key points that we want to establish certain things here in the city. Number one, we want to establish a permanent memorial for Alex at the Bernal Bernal Heights Park at the site where he was actually killed by the SFPD. We want to be able to modify the SFPD, the general order to make alternatives to the lethal use of force. We want to increase the transparency of the SFPD by requiring public and online permanent record keeping of complaints and incidents for the use of force by officers. We want to establish a special prosecutor's office that is true and anonymous to investigate the prosecutorial body in cases involving police misconduct and also require peer review in the office of the medical examiner when facing an officer-involved shooting. And how do people connect to the work you're doing with the Justice for Alex Nieto Coalition if they want to be a part of this? So we have a website. It's www.justice4alexnieto.org. We have event invites that go out through the website. We also have the case status of what was happening during the trial from the beginning of the trial all the way up until the verdict. And then monthly invites to we have uh, burritos on Bernal, which we do every 21st of, of each month in support of the family to go up to the site where he was killed and just kind of give a update on what's happening with anything that's happening in the community. I think it's really important that we just all know that there's going to be a town hall this Thursday at 6 o'clock here in San Francisco at the Joseph Lee Gym. And that is basically solidifying the black and brown unity and the organizing that we as brown and black people of color will be joining forces to um, fight and stop police impunity.
A political crisis is consuming Brazil at this moment. The country that will be hosting this year's Summer Olympics is getting a lot of media attention, but the situation appears to be much more complicated than Western media has portrayed the political unrest to be. Here to help us understand what is going on right now is Brazilian journalist Diogo Antonio Rodriguez. He joins us on the line from Brazil. Welcome, Diogo. It's nice to have you back on La Raza Chronicles. Well, as I have already mentioned, Brazil is living through a very critical moment in its political history. Can you give us some context as to what is taking place right now? Well, I guess uh, it is safe to say we are living a crisis that unfolds in many directions. There is a obvious political crisis, which is um, one of the motivators of all this turmoil. But there are other kinds of crises happening simultaneously, such as an economic crisis and a representation crisis, I guess we can call it. So um, in order to understand why Brazil is so unstable lately, you have to understand that there's a lot going on at the same time. Uh, well, you have to know that uh, President Dilma Rousseff, which is from the Workers' Party, the PT, she won the 2014 elections. She got 54 million votes against 51 that Aécio Neves, her rival, got. He's from the PSDB, the Social Democrats, and which are actually a little bit more to the right these days than they were when they were founded. But um, President Rousseff is having a hard time governing. She has to deal now with a very conservative Congress, and the PT has not managed to maintain the majority it had built in the previous three terms, uh, when President Lula was in power and the previous Rousseff term, she got re-elected. So um, she has a hostile Congress in which she has a very unreliable majority, and sometimes she sees herself, uh, she's tied up, she can't do anything about Congress because the PMDB, which is another very strong party in Brazil, is uh, very divided, and it was, it used to be pro-government, but now it has chosen to take a very um, dubious stand. Sometimes it votes with the government, and sometimes it will divide itself, and uh, will be basically unpredictable. And, uh, well, there's one element, very important element, to explain why the PT is not managing to maintain political stability. You've mentioned the challenge facing the current PT or Workers' Party that has been at the head of the Brazilian government since January 2003 when Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva was elected president. Currently in the media, we are hearing a lot about the scandal involving Brazil's state oil company Petrobras and the judiciary going after former President Lula da Silva. Can you explain what this scandal is about and what role it plays in this political crisis? The other very important reason for this crisis is what we call here the Operação Lava Jato, the car wash operation, which is a um, operation that is happening, has been happening since 2014. It is two years old now. It began a bit before uh, the elections in 2014. And um, the Operação Lava is, I guess, one of the biggest corruption investigations that Brazil has ever seen. In a way, it is a good thing because now we're seeing Brazilian company owners and people that are part of the political elite going to jail and having to uh, be uh, indicted and, and investigated, something that traditionally won't happen in Brazil. The elites 
well, they're sometimes very corrupt, but that doesn't mean that they'll pay for it. And Operação Lava Jato has certainly changed that, um, and people can see that. But Operação Lava Jato has also done a lot of damage to the PT and to other political parties, such as the PMDB, the PMDB, and the PSDB as well, because it has unveiled a massive corruption scheme at Petrobras, the state-owned oil company we have here in Brazil. Well, the investigations are showing that it's the reach of the corruption is very broad and involves private companies as well as the public sector and politicians and, uh, well, all kinds of people in the society. But the party that has been damaged the most is the PT, no doubt about that. And uh, that has put President Rousseff on the spot, as well as former President Lula. Because, well, since they're investigating Petrobras and they chose the year of 2003 as the starting point, it means they're investigating the whole PT administration, the 13, now 14 years that PT has been in power. So um, it is obvious that the government coalition, with all the changes that it has gone through in the last years, uh, is the one that is on the spot. And uh, that has created a sense in the population that the PT is very corrupt and that it is the most corrupt party in Brazil. Well, sometimes people, they will suggest that the PT has, you know, perverted the whole system. When we know that is not true, we know that corruption exists in Brazil, it has existed for a long time, and, uh, but it was never investigated. But the PT is being damaged by that because, well, it is happening under its administration, and that's what most people are seeing. There have been large demonstrations organized against the current government of Dilma Rousseff and calls for her impeachment. How representative is this of the overall national sentiment and on what grounds can Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff be impeached? There's a fourth element in this crisis, which is uh, mainly on the streets, is that people have, have been going to demonstrations against, against the government asking for President Rousseff's impeachment, mainly because of corruption. That's the claim, the, the strongest claim on the street. But uh, it, it is very interesting to see that PT is the only one is the only one who's been blamed for this. There are other uh, politicians, such as Speaker of the House, Speaker of the, the Representatives House, Eduardo Cunha. He has been involved and in, he has been accused of being part of the whole Petrobras scheme, being accused of having uh, accounts overseas in Switzerland. But that doesn't seem to bother the people who are protesting against President Rousseff. So it's a very uh, unique situation because the claims are that they want to end corruption, but the demonstrators, they're not blaming everybody that has been involved in corruption schemes and corruption accusations. And they have proven to be a very strong political force. They have been managing to put a lot of people on the streets in Rio and Sao Paulo and the main capitals of Brazil. And that creates a lot of pressure on the government and the politicians. But without a clear political agenda, it's very hard to respond to. So I guess uh, what, what the only demand is that President Rousseff be impeached. At the same time, there is not a clear reason for President Rousseff to be impeached. This is a very difficult situation 
because in order for her to leave office, she has to be accused of, it's called here in the legislation, of responsibility crimes. And as far as we know, she has not committed any of those crimes, so it would be unjustifiable to take her from office. But since the impeachment process here in Brazil is mainly political, not so uh, based on, on judiciary evidence, there is a risk that she will be impeached by Congress in order to answer to people's uh, wishes, which is a very unnerving situation for everybody because there is a lot of uncertainty of what's going to happen in Brazil. So that's basically the scenery we're living right now. It's very confusing. It's very... Um, it changes all the time, and it has a lot of episodes happening at the same time. You mentioned earlier that the political crisis is very complicated, and there are many individuals and figures involved in this crisis. What other aspects of this political situation can help us better understand the complexities of what is happening in Brazil right now? Uh, it's worth mentioning two other things that I have not mentioned before, which are two, I guess we can call it characters, because everything is looking like a soap opera right now which are uh, Judge Sergio Moro. He is the leader of the Operação Lava Jato, the car wash operation. And um, he, he is known for being very tough on criminals, on, on white-collar crimes. His inspiration comes from Manopoliti in Italy, the clean hands operation, which basically dismounted the Italian mafia, but also brought political instability in Italy as well. So that's a concern we have here that will end up in the same way. And Judge Sergio Moro is invested in proving that anybody can be investigated and uh, the political and financial and entrepreneurial elite of Brazil will not escape from the law. And he's being criticized because he's going to some extremes. For example, he wiretapped former President Lula because he is being investigated under Lava Jato. And on one of those calls, President Lula was speaking to President Rousseff. And Judge Sergio Moro was supposed to send the recording to the Supreme Court of Brazil, which is the branch of the judicial system that has the prerogative to investigate presidents and ministers and secretaries. But he hasn't done so. He um, publicized all the calls that former President Lula had made, including the one with President Rousseff, without asking the Supreme Court. And he's being criticized for that, for his radical stance. But at the same time, he's seen by the population, the general population, as a kind of a hero. He's being seen as someone who can save the country, who can moralize the country because he is combating corruption, because he's fighting corruption with the law, and uh, people are identifying with that in a way, but not sometimes in a democratic way. The other character in this plot is former President Lula, which is up to this day, he has left office five years ago. He is still one of the main political forces in Brazil. He still manages to draw supporters, both among politicians and also uh, among the population. And former President Lula is, well, he is a threat to the opposition because it's a fact that he could still run in the 2018 elections and win. And that would mean that the PT would hold power for 20 years in a row. So that's a reason, that's a reason for, of concern to many of the opposition parties. That certainly has a, has a role in what is happening to President Lula, which is he's being 
investigated under Lava Jato, under Judge Sergio Moro. He's not yet being formally accused of anything. He's being investigated for being involved in the Lava Jato corruption scheme. But uh, up to this day, well, it is safe to say, and, and I think uh, even the opposition would agree, that Judge Moro has, hasn't managed to prove anything. President Lula is not being tried currently, and he's only being investigated. But this fact that a president has origins in the worker class here in Brazil and has identified himself with union, uh, union people and has managed to take millions of people out of poverty is being investigated for corruption. We can say that the opposition is trying to benefit the most from these facts and trying to imply that President Lula is corrupt and um, has damaged his image. The only outcome of this has been political, with great damage to the PT, great damage to President Rousseff, and also what is clearly an attempt to um, undermine President Lula for the 2018 elections. I know it's very complicated and I can complicate it a little bit more, but in a general line, this is what is going on in Brazil. There has been an effort to protect Lula da Silva by having President Rousseff appoint him to a political office. How is this playing out right now? The crisis has taken another turn last week when President Rousseff decided to appoint former President Lula to be her minister, the equivalent of what you have there in the U.S. to a secretary. And he was going to be a secretary, what we call the civil house, which is someone who creates political relationships with Congress and other social uh, political actors. But there has been a judicial battle going on in order to uh, keep President Lula from taken office and it has been working so far he cannot be he cannot take office because the supreme court decided there was a conflict of interest because he's being investigated and that could mean obstruction of justice so this is the point we are at right now president lula has been appointed but it cannot take office and uh, now we're waiting to see what the supreme court will say this is the latest development we have and uh, well protests have been going on since 2015 on both sides, it's safe to say that the anti-government side has managed to put more people on the streets, but at the same time, the pro-government protesters have put a significant amount of people on the streets. So it's not going to be an easy battle because the government, President Lula and the PT, still have the capacity to mobilize millions of people throughout the country. So this is a little bit of what the political crisis in Brazil is. Well, thank you so much, Diogo, for speaking with us this evening. We'll make sure to keep our listeners posted on these very important events in South America and Latin America as a whole. We were just speaking with Diogo Antonio Rodriguez, a Brazilian journalist who joined us on the line direct from Brazil.
Good evening, I'm Edgardo Servano Soto, and you're listening to La Raza Chronicles on KPFA 94.1. President Barack Obama landed in Cuba on Sunday, making the first U.S. presidential visit of its kind in nearly 90 years. Included in Obama's itinerary are meetings with Cuban leaders, an entrepreneurial summit, and a tour of Cuba. The presidential visit marks a significant shift in relationship between the United States and Cuba. Joining us today to comment on Obama's presidential visit to Cuba and its aftermath is Alicia Rapko from the International Committee for Peace, Justice, and Dignity. Alicia, welcome to La Raza Chronicles. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Alicia, President Obama himself has said that this visit is symbolic to closing the Cold War chapter in Cuba's and the United States' mutual histories. Can you provide us with a brief context on the state of Cuban and the U.S. relations prior to the visit? Uh, sure. Uh, first, let me tell you that I think that there's a lot of excitement about uh, President Obama's visit to Cuba, and we hope that this will mean that um, very soon we will see a real change of policy towards Cuba. Uh, probably most people are aware that uh, on December 17, 2014, uh, both President Obama and President Castro announced a new era of uh, U.S.-Cuban relations. And even most significantly for most significant for most Cubans was the return of three of the Cuban five who were still in prison in the United States. Something that you know it's not much mentioned in the news, but that was very significant for the Cuban people. Uh, what happened since then uh, has been a number of, of good steps taken by uh, the Obama administration. Uh, we have to remind people that Cuba hasn't done anything to the United States in the last 50 years uh, or 60 years. So it's, it's really the U.S. that needs to make the, the steps necessary to change the policy. They have done good steps, but the the blockade unfortunately remained in place and intact uh, because um the the it was made by uh, a law in congress and it has to be uh, lifted by congress but also obama has a chance to to do many things for example just to give an example one of the things that the obama administration did was to take cuba out of the list of countries that sponsor terrorism that was one of the things uh, President Obama did, something that I should have done a long time ago because Cuba didn't deserve to be in the list. But in, in any case, uh, it was, and he took it out of the list. The other thing that President Obama did was to increase the categories of people to travel to Cuba. Always, People still have to apply for licenses, so tourism is not yet allowed between for, for U.S. people. But he made it easier for people to travel to Cuba. That's why so many people going right now to Cuba. There has been a number of meetings between U.S. and Cuba uh, government officials. As probably you know, on July 1st, 2015, the relations, the diplomatic relations were established, re-established. And uh, on July 20, 2015, both embassies were open, the Cuban embassy in Washington and the U.S. Embassy in Havana. So there are a series of steps that have been taking place, and the meeting that, you know, the, the visit of President Obama happened at this particular time. Now, again, you know, I just wanted to remind people that uh, the intact, uh, the blockade still remain intact, that there are other things that need to be changed. The Cuban Assessment Act, for example, 
the travel ban needs to be lifted so people can travel freely to Cuba, like they travel to any other country in the world. I'm talking about U.S. people. Uh, the money for programs, for regime change programs, have to be to be ended, too. And Guantanamo, that um, is occupied by the U.S., needs to be returned to Cuba. I'm saying all this because um, I think it's a misconception that things are great right now and everything has been solved, and it's not the case at all. Uh, having said that, I think that President Obama visit will be a very important step forward um, to move in the right direction. Let's talk about the United States trade embargo on Cuba. The embargo was first imposed by the U.S. in 1960, and even the United Nations since 1992 has deemed the embargo a violation of international law. Can you tell us how has the embargo affected the Cuban economy? Yeah, I think that it's hard to um, to assess the damage um, in terms of money. I, I think that uh, it's important to assess, you know, the the impact of the um, uh, blockade. Well, the Cubans call it blockade. The U.S. call it embargo. Um, the impact that I had for such a long time, like, you know, many, many people in Cuba who are now, um, you know, grown uh, through the embargo all their life. According to the United Nations, um, the cost for to the Cuban economy was $160 billion. I mean, that's just to put it in, you know, in dollars, but I think it's much more than that. Uh, I think that... Um, the people of Cuba has gone to tremendous scarcity because of the blockade through all these years. And many other things happen. You know, Cuba has been victim of um, military invasion. Uh, you know, in 1981, it was a dengue epidemic introduced by the CIA where 150 people died, including 101 children. Uh, they have been sabotaged to the production um, attempt of assassination against Cuban leaders. I mean, all this happened as part of a policy. And, of course, this is beyond the embargo, but it was the same thing, you know, to to undermine the Cuban revolution since 1959. Uh, I think that um, it will be a long time for Cuba to be able to recuperate of all these so many years of uh, blockade against Cuba. You're listening to Alicia Rapto from the International Committee for Peace, Justice, and Dignity. And this is Edgardo Silvano Soto for La Raza Chronicles. And as you mentioned earlier, lifting the Cuban embargo is decided by an act of Congress. Is it possible for this Republican-controlled Congress to lift the embargo? And as the Congress is right now, it seems to me very unlikely that that will happen. Having said that, I think that uh, because of the trip of President Obama and all the lawmakers that were with him, Republicans and Democrats, I, I almost feel that it's irreversible what is happening right now. I think that hopefully the next administration will take on from uh, from where we are right now. Uh, I think that there's, if you look at, you know, most people in the United States are, are against the blockade. The international community the community are against the blockade. President Obama is against the blockade. All the Cuban people, Latin Americans, so it's all there. What are ways the U.S. would benefit by fully normalizing relations with Cuba? The lifting of the embargo or blockade against Cuba will benefit both both countries. 
because you know Cuba has a lot to offer uh, too. And for for instance, you know, I mean, I just can mention a few things. You know, like culture, history, political systems, values, sports, medical development in Cuba. Uh, you know, there are, for example, some medication that Cuba has developed uh, to to cure um, the diabetes. And, you know, for example, there's 70,000 people in the United States that every year goes through amputation due to diabetes. And there is a, a vaccine uh, in Cuba that prevented that. It's called Everprompt uh, and P. Everprompt P. Uh, that vaccine is available in other countries, but not in the United States. Cuba has developed cancer vaccine against uh, lung cancer, for example, that is available in Cuba and not available in the United States. Uh, that way, I think that it would be very beneficial for the um, United States if the blockade is lifted. So, you know, with that, I just uh, wanted to close in saying that I think we are living in a very exciting time. And I think that uh, we hope that uh, the really changes taking place um, in in relation to U.S. policy towards Cuba, we really hope that this path continue and that finally the Cuban people can be, um, you know, can live alone and live in peace and have the system that they have chosen to live. And Alicia, um, tell us about the campaign that you're currently involved in with the International Committee for Peace, Justice, Dignity, and how it intends through grassroots organizing to end the blockade on Cuba. Sure. Uh, we have done different things, but what we are working right now is to go to Washington to do uh, a few days. We call it Days of Actions Against the Blockade. Uh, we feel that, you know, our organization, along with others in the United States, are part of the American, um, you know, people that wanted to change the policy towards Cuba. We're planning to do is to organize visits to members of Congress and to, to let them know about the impact of the U.S. blockade on Cuba and how both countries will benefit uh, by lifting it. And we have done this several times, and we will continue to do it. We feel like uh, people need to tell Congress uh, what we think, and I think that they need to hear from their constituencies why it's important to leave the blockade. And besides visiting members of Congress, we are also organizing uh, other activities, including a forum, we call it Through the Cuban Eyes, because we are inviting Cubans from Cuba to come and participate in the forum and to talk about the reality that they face every day in Cuba. Uh, some of them will be professionals in the healthcare field. Others will be a student, a journalism, journalism student. Uh, then we will have a woman who is connected to the literacy campaign in, in, at the beginning of the revolution. Uh, she's in charge of the Museum of Literacy in Cuba. So we wanted to organize this forum so people can ask questions to Cubans. Um, about the reality. So that's what we're planning. The events will be from April 18th to April 22nd. And if anybody's interested in contacting us or in going to our webpage, www.theinternationalcommittee.org, the information is there about the actions against the blockade in April in Washington. Thank you for joining us, Alicia. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Ala, 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 ala.
This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. I have on the line Carl Kramer. He's the co-campaign director for the San Francisco Living Wage Campaign. Welcome. Bienvenido to La Raza Chronicles, Carl Kramer. Thank you, Nina, for having me on your show. Well, it's a pleasure, and I hear that you've been involved in trips to Juarez checking out the maquiladora strikes. Can you tell us about that? Yes, this this has been ongoing solidarity work of uh, the Living Wage Coalition uh, that uh, while we're here fighting for $15 uh, an hour is the minimum wage, it's going to be difficult to achieve that when workers right across, uh, you know, imaginary line are being paid uh, about uh, $4 per day. And the uh, the peso is being devalued and uh, they're becoming more and more impoverished. So I've been making regular trips to uh, Juarez since 2008 and working with uh, grassroots organizations there. Since June, the workers have been organizing and striking and protesting through various means at uh, four large maquiladoras in Juarez. These are uh, the plants that are assembling products mostly for the U.S. market, like a Comscope, uh, also known as ADC, which makes fiber optic equipment for AT&T and uh, Verizon, uh, as well as Telcel in Mexico. Um, Lexmark, which is, uh, as most people are familiar with, the computer printers. Uh, well, this is where they fill the, the printer cartridges and the toner cartridges. At uh, Foxconn, which is uh, uh, part of the uh, the huge uh, transnational factory system that's uh, based in Taiwan and and uh, and in China is uh, known for assembling iPhones. But uh, because of labor unrest in China, wages are increasing in China, and so now the, those same factories are now moving to uh, Mexico, uh, where wages are cheaper, and uh, in Eaton Boosman, which makes fuses for automobiles. And uh, remember, you know, what uh, what uh, De- uh, Detroit and Flint, Michigan are going through right now are because U.S. automakers closed down plants and moved them across the border to exploit the labor of people in Mexico. Well, it's very uh, interesting that you bring up this link between the two countries, because there's been some solidarity between between U.S. workers and Mexican workers around this issue. I read something about that the workers in Lexington, Kentucky, staged a solidarity uh, protest for the workers in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. In uh, uh, around um, January 13th, uh, the Kentucky Workers League uh, organized demonstrations at the uh, uh, at the headquarters of Lexmark, um, which takes its name because it's in Lexington, Kentucky, um, and uh, it's uh, workers there are uh, uh, organizing activities in, uh, in solidarity, um, and uh, as well as in El Paso, um, there's a student group that's formed at uh, the University of Texas El Paso. That's uh, been very active, and the graduate student there who is, uh, uh, does a Facebook page on the uh, solidarity with the uh, workers at uh, 
the Lexmark Mekila. And, and then in uh, the uh, El Paso Central Labor Union, which is their Central Labor Council, passed a resolution in support of the Mekila workers. Uh, that also went to the state uh, Federation of Labor in Texas, uh, and that's also that uh, same resolution was passed by the San Francisco Labor Council. The uh, the AFL-CIO issued a very good uh, solidarity statement uh, in support of workers, and, and also you know linking it to uh, the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership and how these uh, so-called free trade agreements are eroding workers' rights. Could you explain to us what the link is between? these maquiladora strikes and the Transnational Pacific Partnership? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Well, the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership is a a trade deal that's negotiated between the uh, Obama administration and and 11 other uh, Pacific Rim countries that is basically now a scheme to uh, create lower wage areas uh, in the world uh, that uh, to take the place of uh, production in China. So around the 2000s, uh, workers in the Miquilas and in uh, Ciudad Juarez and other places along the border were told, okay, you take pay cuts or we're going to close this factory and move it to China where they're paying workers 25 cents an hour. Now, because of rising wages in China, production is returning to Mexico, but working conditions are deteriorating and wages are getting worse as they're devaluing the peso, primarily to make things attractive to these transnational corporations to reap huge profits. With the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Maquila owners will be telling workers, okay, you take further pay cuts or we're going to close this factory and move it to Vietnam or move it to Malaysia, which will now be facilitated by the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Well, now we get an even clearer picture of what this word globalization means, pitting worker against worker. As you were describing the U.S. workers' response It was very heartening. It reminded me of the turn of the century when the Wobblies were helping Pancho Villa and there was a lot of action across the border of worker-to-worker solidarity. Mm -hmm. Excellent point. And, of course, you know, the Ciudad Juarez support of uh, the Miquiladora workers as well as fighting against the femicidias um, often adopt the uh, persona of Adelita, women uh, who were active in the Mexican Revolution. The organizations in Ciudad Juarez that work on women's issues in fighting against the femicides, the killing of women, mostly Maquila workers, and they've also are mobilizing in support of the strikes that are taking place at the Maquilas because because it's the just thing to do, of course, but also because most of the workers are are women. It's maybe 80% women who are working in the Maquilas, and so it's a, it's a major women's issue. I, I was mentioning that, you know, the uh, people there are very conscious of the history of the land and of the Mexican Revolution, uh, the role of women in, in the Mexican Revolution and the persona of Adelita. Well, we're celebrating International Women's Month here at KPFA for the whole month of March. So this is very exciting news for us. And I want to thank you for this report. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to check in with you and keep abreast of these events. Thank you. Muchas gracias, Carl Kramer. Uh, Thank you, Nina, for having me on your show. Always a pleasure. Bye.
Bye. se oculte donde la ansiedad y la impaciencia se refugie donde la ansiedad y la impaciencia se refugie aliviando mis pesares va la hoja de papel convirtiéndose en aliada de los asuntos de la ligerita quiero ser ligerita quiero ser así de blanca como una hoja de papel así de blanca como una hoja de que yo te pido donde la soledad y el corazón se junten donde la soledad y la conciencia se dibuje donde la soledad Conciencia se dibuje, aliviando mis pesares va la hoja de papel, convirtiéndose en aliada de los asuntos del ayer. Ligerita quiero ser, ligerita quiero ser, así de blanca.
That's the voice of the Enegameros. This is off her CD, Eterno Retorno. She'll be playing at the Red Poppy House this Saturday, the 26th. Tickets are available at the door, Red Poppy House in, in San Francisco's Mission District. You just heard the song Ligerita. <laughs> Listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. I'm Brenda Yescas, and this is the calendar of Bay Area events and happenings for the week of Tuesday, March 22nd through the 28th. Today, through March 24th, Cinemas presents the theatrical release of Ella es Ramona. She is Ramona, a comic fable that breaks down gender and body size stereotypes, starring stand-up comedian Andrea Ortega, directed by Hugo Rodriguez in Spanish with English subtitles at the Roxy Theater, 3117 16th Street in San Francisco. Starts at 7 p.m. Roxy.com. For Wednesday, March 23rd, Run With The Moon is a monthly series on the full moon dedicated to celebrating the songs of our roots. Featuring local artists Maria Jose Montijo, Ben Borden, and more at the Starline Social Club, 2236 Martin Luther King Jr. Way in Oakland at 8 p.m. StarlineSocialClub.com For Thursday, March 24th, Sudamerica Presente with Baracutanga, the seven-piece band from New Mexico, representing four different countries, prides itself on arranging traditional South American rhythms in interesting ways, such as Waino and Cumbia, or the Afro-Cuban Bata and Afro-Peruvian Festejo, blended with Andean Zampoñas, among countless other rhythmic combinations at La Peña Cultural Center in Berkeley, 3105 Shattuck Avenue, 8 p.m., lapeña.org. For Friday, March 25th, there will be a preview of a docudrama by playwright Paul Flores, new work, On the Hill, which aims to use performance art to tell the story of the impact that the death of Alex Nieto at the hands of SFPD has had on the youth of color, residing in San Francisco neighborhoods. Impact that the death of Alex Nieto at the hands of SFPD has had on the youth of color residing in San Francisco neighborhoods that are currently being gentrified. By using music, dance, and theater to tell the story, this will serve as a powerful tool for communities to find a way to dialogue at the Brava Theater in San Francisco. 2781 24th Street, 7 p.m. brava.org. For Friday, March 25th, join Bay Area's own Pasto Seco, mixing traditional Central, South American, and Caribbean styles like cumbia, mambo, saya, and salsa to bring people together in celebration. At the Starry Plow, 3101 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley at 8 p.m. Starryplow.com. For Saturday, March 26th, join Diana Gameros for an evening of Latin-influenced indie pop and folk. She will share her original compositions inspired by her life as an immigrant, her constant search for home, and the stories of others she has met throughout her journey at the Red Poppy Art House, 2698 Folsom Street in San Francisco, 7.30 p.m. redpoppyarthouse.org. For Saturday, March 26, La Peña is proud to present bilingual children's musician 
and Grammy nominee Jose Luis Orozco with special guest 123 Andres. His concert is an energetic and interactive journey through Latin American culture, history, and oral traditions. During his presentations, Jose Luis plays his acoustic guitar and he sings traditional Latin American children's songs and original compositions. This is at La Peña Cultural Center in Berkeley, starting at 3 p.m. lapeña.org. And this has been a calendar of events, musica y arte for the San Francisco Bay Area. To add your event to this list, send us an email at larazachronicles at kpfa.org. And for more information on these events or our show, visit us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Chronicles. Feliz noches! Laraza Chronicles on KPFA 94.1 FM community-powered radio. If you want to hear this program again or share it with others, go to the KPFA website or check us out on SoundCloud. 
Just search for La Raza Chronicles. And of course, make sure to like us on Facebook for regular updates on news, arts, and culture desde el mundo latino. We'd also love to hear from our listeners. To share your feedback or ideas for upcoming shows, you can email us at larasachronicles at kpfa.org. Stay tuned next Tuesday at 7 p.m. for more of La Raza Chronicles Crónicas de la Raza. Hasta la próxima. Buenas noches.